Hello, and welcome to the Irish Life Archive podcast. In this episode, we're joined by David Costello. Dave writes on history and politics on his website, Never Felt Better, and in particular has written an extensive series of articles in Irish military history, from the earliest records almost to the contemporary, entitled Ireland's Wars. We spoke today previously in 2021 on episode 20 of the podcast about his background and work on earlier military history, and he joins us again to discuss the period of the Troubles in particular, and the comprehensive series of articles on the topic he has written since last speaking to us. You'll find Dave's website at neverfeltbetter.wordpress.com. You'll find the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. As ever, any feedback on the podcast or on the project generally, um, you can email us at contact at leftarchive.ie. So thanks, Dave, for joining us, and thank you for listening. Dave, it's great to have you here, and thanks a million for coming back. We were saying, actually, in the uh, short podcast that we did to introduce this sequence of podcast it's really good to be catching up again with people who we've talked to in the last three three and a half years Mm -hmm. so we had you on and i'm trying to think was this the first or second sequence it was a few years ago now yeah march march 21 i think it was right yeah that sounds right yeah yeah and uh, at that time we talked about uh your writings up to the border campaign, I think we just you'd you'd got a more or less to the border campaign at that stage. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that that sounds right. But you have progressed since then yet mm. further. Uh, Time marches on. <laughs> yeah, and I mean you're now you're just nudging up against the 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 end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, and uh, the work has obviously ex- expanded out to encompass um, everything the border campaign on the splits. In the Republican movements, the intervention by the British, uh, or the greater intervention by the British, um, and also, of course, like issues pertaining to the Irish Defence Forces in terms of the conflict, which you might talk about in a few minutes, uh, sure. such as plans for incursions into the north during the early part of the uh, the troubles. I sent you a whole bunch of questions and. Uh, <laughs> We, we kind of came to the conclusion there's quite a bit in there to have to talk about, but this isn't going to be chronological or it's not going to be purely chronological. It's going to be in a sense more thematic. We'll talk a bit about like uh, the approaches that you brought to bear on this research of yours. And we might talk at the end a little bit about where you intend to take it. Sure. Um, I suppose just to kick off, how broadly speaking have you conducted research into the more contemporary periods of the trouble onwards? And how has this differed in terms of your research for previous elements of Irish military history or has it perhaps it hasn't at all or have you found there's been a difference has there been something you know does the fact something happened um within living memory and recent living memory at that uh mean that you have to be more sensitive is it a case of this being history as it were or is this more contemporary to the contemporary resonances and I've mentioned them already but do the contemporary resonances from that particular history bear it all or impinge on what you're doing yeah um no absolutely um like like it is very different once you get into a period of history where the people involved might still be alive yeah and as as is my deepest fear might be able to get in contact with you and tell you what a bad job you're doing (laughs) so yeah no that absolutely does change things for like for the good and bad for the good and bad good in that i think there's a lot more firsthand sources for events in question from different perspectives which is good Mm. bad in that you're kind of you're on that borderline of history and journalism 
yeah um, where like there maybe there hasn't been enough distance uh to find like a lot of unbiased and unvarnished um accounts like like i was thinking about this in the run-up to today like you know i was alive during the troubles yeah um, albeit i was only i was only 10 years old when it ended um but i i was old enough to realize what was happening and to recognize events of the troubles um like you know one of my earlier memories is is uh coming back from my mother's home in North Clare one night, uh, going through a guard checkpoint and being told by my parents that the guards were looking for IRA suspects because they just killed a guard in Limerick. All right, yeah. yeah. During the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, no, like, it, it is very different in, in that, in that, like, there's, you feel this kind of pressure to be very, very sensitive mm. to viewpoints, to, and one of the things I found myself doing a lot more over the last couple of years of entries is making it very clear when I was stating my own opinion mm. on something that was happening or when I, and when I was quoting somebody's opinion of what was happening like if I was offering analysis or 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 a summation or or casting a viewpoint I was very careful to say this is basically this is what I think <laughs> I'm not saying this is exactly 100% yeah. what happened and I, I think that's just kind of reflecting that kind of that kind of status of of people involved are still alive it's still a very, very emotive issue for people a lot more than maybe, say, like the Easter Rising, the War of Independence, the Civil War, which which happened a century ago. Um, in terms of actually, like, how it differs from other periods in terms of research, like I said, a lot more first-hand accounts, a lot of contemporary newspaper reports are available, which are a very right. valuable kind of resource. Um in terms of what I was using, like resources like Kane, like the Kane archives, mm. um, is super, super useful to have something like that. And that's not something that mm. is really replicated for a lot of other Irish history. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of my approach, I, I tried to kind of do similar to the Irish Revolutionary Period, where I had a few set texts mm. that I refer to initially. Uh, for this one, especially um, David McKettrick and David McVeigh's book, Making Sense of the Troubles. Yeah, I think is a very, very handy kind of general history of the troubles. Mm. Uh, for something a bit more specific, but also it also quite handy is uh, Richard English's history of the IRA. Mm. Um, then a lot of newspaper archives. Um, mm. A lot of time spent on Google Books, <laughs> um, which, yeah. which yeah. is one of those really, really. It can be it can be spotty, obviously, because you don't get a, you don't get the full thing. But it's a very, mm. very important research. Mm. Uh, my overall aim was always. Not, I'm not writing a minute mm. history of the period where I'm going into everything in very precise detail. My general goal is to get a flavor of the period, to get the idea of the history, to not get too bogged down in any particular incident or event beyond the really, really big ones. Mm. Um, and just kind of to move forward from there. Uh, in, in terms of my kind of approach as well, I decided to do chronologically. Um, just because it was simpler that way um, and then just to go from year to year to year rather than, than another way. Like that's why my account is interspersed with like cutaways to stuff to relate to the Irish army on UN missions and things. Yeah. Like that. Uh, just because it was simpler that way. Um, I, I, I didn't want it to be a case where I spent a long time covering the troubles and then, okay, now we're going to go back to 1960 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. to talk about that kind of, to talk about uh, the UN and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it is an exhausting thing talking about and writing about the troubles, mm. um, you know, because it's very hard 
it's very hard reading sometimes when, when you're discussing some of the incidents and, and things like that. And then we're getting up to that period now, right now. I think I was just today, I was just writing about 1990. I know we're going to be going to that kind of period where, where I remember things happening mm. like very specific, like specifically, like one thing that really stands out in my mind is the Oma bombing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was very, I was, I was more than old enough to appreciate that. And um, it happened. You say this yourself. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting is you're you're not in any sense shy about saying in the actual text itself, like where there, um, you know, where you're not challenges, but kind of aspects of it that you need to that are problematic that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But you say yourself, like that the history. There's so much that happened in this period of time, and I mean, obviously, we're talking of a sweep of time from the end of the border campaign right the way through to 1988, 1989, 1990. I mean, that's how many years? You know, it's, it's a good mm-hmm. bunch of decades. Yeah. Um, but how did you, in the end, pick out? the areas that you thought you should address because i mean for instance it's very comprehensive as a stance uh you've got like pieces on sunningdale you've got pieces on the anglo-irish agreement you've got the brighton bombing you've got the hunger strikes uh, you know uh the, the 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 uvf and the uda and uh loyalist um paramilitaries what was it that, in a sense as you were going along you said right this is something that's a key thing that i was i, I need to address Okay, so um, there was obviously there's, there's obviously like big, big in Italian global mm. parks events like Bloody Sunday, yeah. the Brighton bombing. At some point soon, there'll be stuff like the Oma bombing, which get their own kind of entries because they are enormous events of of great political and, and yeah. military significance. Um, in terms of everything else, I mean, I knew I couldn't replicate my approach from the Irish Revolutionary period. Like my general approach then was, I will pick out an event of some description from roughly every month of the conflict, whether it's an ambush, whether it's an assassination, whether it's some major political development. And I will talk about that along with the big things. Mm. Uh, but I knew I couldn't really replicate that for the troubles because I would be writing from now until the yeah, for, forever. Um, <laughs> and especially because, you know, you, you look up and I would encourage anyone to look up Kane just to mm. get it to get an idea of of uh, that's Kane uh, C A I N mm-hmm. uh, to to get an idea of it because especially in the seventies there's almost literally killings happening every day yeah um, and and sometimes like multiple multiple fatality level kind of events bombings shootings engagements with the British Army with the REC mm. and uh, like when I was when I was planning out how I was going to approach the troubles it became very clear to me quickly I couldn't I can't cover all of these things yeah. Like I can't have an entry on this this bombing that killed two soldiers mm. not because it's not important and not because it wasn't terrible for the British military that two soldiers killed or that it wasn't a momentous moment for a paramilitary that they were able to kill two soldiers. Yeah. Just because if I get bogged down discussing everything of that level with the same level of detail, I'll lose the signal for the noise. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and I wanted to get across kind of the course of the conflict in a, a bit more of a streamlined way than that. Okay. So that meant that, so I have, I have a lot of entries where I'm basically saying, okay, this was 1983. Mm-hmm. Here is a paragraph on this major event. Here's another paragraph, 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 like what, like, and then, then maybe like an analysis at the end, like one of the ones I'm writing at the moment, it, it kind of takes that approach for 1990. Right. In respect to provisional attacks in 1990, of which there were many, that claimed a lot of lives, mm. but none, I would say, that individually 
merited a much greater amount of discussion just because a they were very similar to other events um and maybe b they didn't have the political impact that made them kind of more important um so like that 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 was a difficult that could be a difficult process because like i i would be reading up on like geez this is terrible like like one of the ones was the peace people um Mm -hmm entry where i was like hmm, should i should i have an entry on the peace people just because again it was so it was kind of a, a brief kind of movement the number of fatalities was small compared to other bombings is it actually worth talking about it i decided to in the end because i felt it was important to kind of get across a level of popular resistance to what was happening in the troubles that was occurring at that time and yeah, yeah. That was that was worth talking about especially in relation to uh the future peace movement and kind of where that maybe came from so like that that's why i decided to focus in on that on that occasion uh other times i had to just kind of be kind of ruthless <laughs> in terms yeah. of in terms of what i cover and what i didn't which is not to say that there won't be kind of events that i won't mm-hmm. talk about uh going going back mm-hmm. like for example um one that i definitely might go back at some point in the future and write more about is the drum the attack right which is where the the ira the provisional ira that's um overran a border post mm. in a direct assault which was very like in the late 80s which is a very very rare um kind of attack for them mm. i only covered it briefly in one of my other entries just because again i kind of felt mm. I can't spend too much time on this or else I'm, I, I'm going to feel like I have to spend that much time on everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it was an interesting enough uh, incident that I kind of, I might go back and, and, and maybe give it its own that's interesting right. time. Yeah. That's interesting. But that's, that's another thing, actually, if I just kind of want to mention that, like, like yeah. in terms of, in terms of writing a difficulty is, is even is in terminology. Cause a lot of the time I, I, I catch myself using the term the IRA mm when I mean the provisionals, right? Yeah. Like, like it's almost just, just for the sake of variety in the text, I just say the RRA, but I look back and like, I really shouldn't just use that term because that's, you know, like the, am I talking the continuity, who are we talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and terminology is very important as well. Cause I, I've often used the term volunteers to describe members of the IRA during the revolutionary period. And I, I have a mm. key to use that as well, but of course, there were other volunteers in the troubles, like the UF, mm. um, and and that's kind of another difficulty is trying to keep on top of that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Just just for fear that I will say the wrong thing, right? Yeah, to, yeah. To, to say the wrong thing. Is is there how well developed is the area of military histories of the conflict at this stage? Would you say? I mean, is there a large body of material? There's obviously a large body of. Yeah, or general historical analysis and political analysis, and and indeed analysis and commentary on the paramilitaries and so forth. But I'm wondering, from a purely military historical perspective, how deep is the level of research into it at this point? I mean, to some extent, it's 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 deep. Like there's like especially from the British military. Mm. There, there would be a lot of kind of unit histories and kind of more general histories, like trying to look at it from the British military side. Like, and I remember when I was doing my my masters uh, in college, that was right around the time that the 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 occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan was dragging on. So suddenly there was a huge interest in yeah. counterinsurgency. 
And suddenly you were being drowned in papers and journal articles examining the British role in Northern Ireland in terms of fighting an insurgency war. Like it it was one of those things where it felt like everyone was looking for the magic bullet and how to win a a counterinsurgency war. And yeah, they didn't seem to care that the British didn't really win the troubles. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly the British military didn't. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the end result is I, there's a fair amount of research from that perspective. I would say there's less from the paramilitary perspective for obvious reasons, right? Just because there's less people to talk about it or less yeah. people willing to talk about it, so you, yeah. you don't get that perspective. Like there's no equivalent to the to the military archives for the Irish Revolutionary Period, where you have that amazing resource where you have thousands of, of records of people who were involved talking very intimately about the things they were involved in. Yeah. That, hasn't really come into being for the troubles yet. Uh certainly think it will. Um maybe not. Right. Uh there might not be any popular will from like a, a public body to kind of create that kind of archive. Yeah. Maybe like I mean you can see it from the British government at the moment. The the emphasis seems to be very much on let's just forget this ever happened. Yeah. Um yeah. The, the Boston yeah. thing can't have helped the likelihood of that ever happening either yeah you know well no matter what the the conservatives think it's it's definitely never going to be forgotten about that's for sure Mm. uh but maybe maybe i don't i don't see a kind of a popular will to create that kind of archive yet maybe someday Mm. um but yeah like in terms of those in terms of that kind of unit history thing there's less from the pattern military side just because i think there's a lot of people unwilling to talk about it and we're just not wanting to talk about it you touch on the counterinsurgency aspect of it. I mean, mm. is, I mean, and, I, and just when you were saying it, I was thinking to myself, wow, I mean, how easy is it to map one counterinsurgency onto another? I'd have Very thought, difficult. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, as, as I said, like at the time, there was a lot of money, especially in the United States, being thrown at institutes to find yeah. counterinsurgency research that we can apply to Iraq and Afghanistan. So suddenly you had like loads of stuff cropping up. A lot of it focused on British experiences yeah. throughout the world. Yeah, and inevitably stuff on Northern Ireland. Um, but the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was not the war in Northern Ireland um, in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so there's only so much kind of lessons you can draw. There's plenty of lessons on counterinsurgency to draw from from the troubles. Of course, there is, mm-hmm. but probably less than maybe you think that you might be able to apply elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So, so it, it, in a way to encapsulate that, uh, there's more stuff that's being done. It still continues, obviously, it's an area of mm. fertile research, but it's mm. it sounds as if what you're saying is like the natural fact since yeah, counterinsurgencies have kind of well, we've moved on in a sense, things have moved on, yes, events moved on, definitely. And like when I talked, I mentioned there, there was this, there was this flood of counterinsurgency related stuff once Iraq, once America withdrew from Iraq and Afghanistan wound down, not to say that they're over because they aren't, yeah, that tap shut. <laughs> big time really? yeah, yeah like like suddenly there was counterinsurgency was a dirty word no one wanted to hear about it anymore especially yeah. in that kind of military field and i guess the other side is conflicts like ukraine come in and that's mm. a very different sort of a conflict i mean that's yeah, yeah, yeah. traditional early 20th century early to mid 20th century conflict yeah know? regular like a, a, a conventional war as they yeah say. conventional war yeah yeah um insofar so, as a war can be conventional it's a bit of a yeah it's a simple way of looking at it but it's it's the only way that you can kind of yeah being too reductionist i guess Mm. yeah i'm being too reductionist and just speaking of like in terms of like we kind of mentioned there like british perspectives certain british Mm. perspectives wanted to make sure the trouble doesn't happen i remember myself and my uh my now fiance went over to london 
uh, we went to the Tower of London where there is mm. a small museum dedicated to the guards, the guards regiments, some of whom served in Northern Ireland, but there is a lot there on their service in World War II and other places, and there is very, very little on what they did in the Troubles. <laughs> you know, just like relatively speaking, it's a very, very small, very like, and they and they were in Northern Ireland. Right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Well, that's so a lot. Yeah, there's there is still that kind of a certain amount of institutional, um, you know. You sure it was an, an ugly little war that we'd like to forget. Yeah, to okay. to a certain extent. Um, oh, that's that's a, a wee bill went through the Commons to that effect quite recently too. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> very true. And that kind of and that too. I mean, if you dovetail that with what you're saying, Dave. I mean, like the two of those piece of information really do show that there's yeah. Uh, forgetfulness and amnesia, deliberate amnesia. Yeah. Let's not talk about conflict. Yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose that's kind of a natural consequence when when you're in a position like, say, the British government is, where it seems impossible to quote unquote solve Northern mm. Ireland. Mm. Uh, that maybe the natural reaction is, okay, what if we just pretend that nothing's wrong at all and we'll just move forward? But. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I always think about uh, the film The Guard, um, oh, yeah. Brendan Gleeson's character in that when when he's kind of facing the fact that he can't, uh, even if he succeeds in defeating the bad guys at the end, he won't he won't be able to live a, a life anymore. He just says that's the problem with the Irish; they never forget anything. Right. Um, yeah. and that's that's very very true, and it's something that I think a lot of political leaders in Britain and also I think in Dublin sometimes just kind of don't want to acknowledge. Mm. Um, mm. you know um, and that's that's a problem sometimes yeah what surprised you about revisiting this period of history I, did you find certain dynamics were more important or less important than you'd expected and um, do you think the overall conduct and path of the conflict responded to how such conflicts are viewed militarily and through the prism of military history or did it kind of go off on a tangent that was unexpected yeah, um, things that surprised me, I mean, I, I've touched on already, but like the sheer number of kind of individual incidents mm. always kind of surprised me. Look back, especially in those early years of the Troubles in the 70s, mm. uh, when like literally every day someone is being shot, someone's being killed, someone's being blown up by a bomb. Mm. And it's very hard to imagine that happening today. Because mm. because because I you think, you look at it and you're thinking, wow, if this was happening every day, like just not too far away from where I'm sitting, like an hour's drive from here, mm. that would be un- like, it's it's a kind of an unreal feeling to look back and consider that. And I, I, I know it would be different today because of different kind of forms of communication and the way that kind of information would be imparted to people. But yeah, that's definitely a surprise looking back that this level of violence was occurring on the island. Mm. Um, other things would be the casual nature of a lot of that violence. Mm. Um, like especially the retaliatory kind of element of it where when the provisionals set off a bomb, unionist paramilitaries kill a random Catholic or vice versa. Mm. You know, that kind of casual nature of kind of sectarian hatred connected to military action um, is definitely always surprising to look at. It kind of reaches its apex with things like the Shankill Butchers, which I wrote an entry on. Yeah. Which I felt it was important to write an entry on because it was kind of like, like I said, the apex of that kind of sectarian issue where it crosses the border from military into just psychopathy. Mm. Um, other things, I'm, I'm, I'm always, 
I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always surprised by the dead set nature of political unionism mm. um, down the years where there is this absolute and fundamental refusal to acknowledge that their time in power has resulted in anything wrong, yeah. especially in the 70s, uh, where there's just this absolutely overwhelming feeling of no majority rule is the answer. Uh, the Ulster unionists uh, being in power is the answer. And the nationalist slash Catholic community have nothing to complain about. Do you know, and that level of thinking lasting for as long as it did. Is, or does. Or way. still does. Yeah, it's, it's still an, an enormous yeah. surprise. Yeah. Like I often think about, and I think it was John Hume um, during the negotiations in the lead up to, in the years ahead of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Like, and I can't remember, he was negotiating with some Ulster politician. It might have been James, John, uh, James Molyneux. And he was basically told that the uh, the Ulster units couldn't accept the Catholic in the Ministry of Education. And he said, well, you know, it's basically we're, we're half the country mm. and you're saying you can't accept that we can be in charge of education. Like, mm. what, what, are, what are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> you know, like how yeah. are we supposed to move forward in the face yeah. of that kind of intransigence? Yeah. Um, and I That's suppose the last thing that I, to mention in terms of like, things that surprise me about the troubles is the number of opportunities that were wasted to resolve issues that led to violence, mm. you know, like in the run up to the beginning of the troubles and like that, that 1969 kind of period, like it, like the, the troubles didn't just like come out of nowhere, mm. like various Ulster, various Northern Irish politicians had the chance to make changes that could have reduced the, the lack of engagement that the nationalist community had with the state in terms of housing, in terms of employment, in terms of just policing is always obviously a huge big thing. Mm. But there was just this this refusal to to properly engage with those topics or just just to pretend that they weren't a problem at all. And then that continues on past when the troubles have started. Um, You know, when when like the fact the fact that like like people in Stormont couldn't cop on to the fact that there are now video cameras that can catch all this violence happening and beam it around the world very, very quickly. And it took a long time for them to learn that lesson. (laughs) Um, Do you know, uh, there's a lot of incidents where it's like, well, if they just approached it a little less Mm. like hardline, a little less militant, Mm. do you know, they they really could have turned a corner. They could have taken the air of the balloon and, and, they yeah. couldn't have kept, like, you know, <clears throat> delivering open goals for entities like the provisionals to score into. Yeah. So that that always um, always kind of surprised me. Other things, like the dynamics that I that were more important or less important, like one thing I, I'm always kind of surprised by is I feel like London's involvement early on in the Troubles was less important in some respects. Really? Than some people have said, and I say that in terms of that, like the Labour governments that were there at the start of the Troubles, mm they seem to be willing to give Stormont a lot of rope. Mm. Um, Like there was a lot of ultimatums and things that nature where you have to change things. You have to improve things for Catholics, for nationalists, Mm. or else we're going to cut off the funding. Yeah. And then, you know, six months later, they make the same ultimatum. And it's, and that kind of feeds into this kind of unionist feeling of, well, you know, obviously we're doing something right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
And which, which again, which like fuels nationalist hostility to the state, which fuels the IRA, which fuels violence, and mm. on and on and on and on. Uh, and I, I suppose maybe I should, I shouldn't. It's, it's more a case that uh, London could have been doing more at the at the start of the troubles than they did. Mm. And like, like there's there's so many points in that period, 1965 to like 1973, where opposite choices could have been made that could have changed things, not necessarily stop the troubles dead, but mm. and, and, and reading accounts of that period always kind of surprised me mm. um, in terms of just people like, and especially in comparison to say the mid nineties, when certain politicians in London and Dublin were bending over backwards to make sure the peace process was happened. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, and it, like it took that level of time for them to realize where well, we can't just it can't just be business as usual. We can't just throw police into the situation. Yeah. We can't just throw more soldiers onto the street. We actually have to come to a solution. Yeah. Um, and it, like we're coming up to that point where figures like Albert Reynolds and John Major, mm. you know, they 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 greet bombings no more with, well, that's the end of negotiations because we can't, because there's been a bombing. It, it, it actually turns completely around where there's been a bombing, which means that we have to negotiate even harder. Right. Yeah. You know, we have to, and it, but the fact that it took so long to get to that point is a surprise. You know, yeah. the troubles is such a long war. Um, and there's a lot of unnecessary death there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, because everyone involved couldn't come to a political solution. Like, like, like we talk about it, like, like the Good Friday Agreement differs from a Sunningdale in some respects, but a lot of the key elements, it's very similar. Mm. And you look back and you think, well, why didn't they just accept Sunningdale in the seventies? Yeah. You know, um, what like did was it really just a case that there had to be this much bloodshed in order for them to be, in order for there to be like a political reason to accept the Good Friday Agreement, mm. which is pretty sad. Mm. Really, yeah, I, I've had a similar line of thought. Unfortunately, yeah. that seems to be the logic of some of the responses that it took X amount of time before there was a willingness to engage. Yeah. You know, it's like that. It's like that. Must that potentially apocryphal Mussolini quote? You know, where he says the reason he declares war on France so late is that he just needs a few thousand dead to show his face at the peace conference. Yeah, Do you know, yeah. <laughs> and that kind yeah. of thinking is pretty poisonous. Did you were saying there, like for a very long time, and I'm presuming you're saying about the British response, mm. it was a case of throwing soldiers into the mix. I mean, you make a very interesting point in one of the later posts that Thatcher actually said she couldn't. She was sending yeah. soldiers over to be killed. Yeah, that was after the Anglo-Irish uh, Agreement, I think. Or it was after that. Yeah, it was after some particular. Uh, it was a bombing where there was some. Um, That's right. Yeah, there was some recriminations against the RUC for not doing enough. Yeah, to prevent the thirty-six and, guys on the bus, wasn't it? Yeah, were, yeah, and uh, yeah, she, she basically told the RUC, "We can't keep throwing British soldiers." But, but do you think, although, that, although that's exactly what they kept doing, yeah. So little. did that characterize, in a sense, the British response, particularly once they got once uh, Storm was prorogued? I mean, is that your sense from the military side of thing of things that it was uh, it was almost a case of the response was well, it's a military response, yeah. and and we're going to throw in as many yeah. soldiers as we need to up to authorization. Yeah, point? yeah, no, no, for a long time in the late 70s, throughout the 80s, throughout the Thatcher years especially, mm. not so much towards the end of the Thatcher years, but there was definitely this strong feeling of, well, we can beat the IRA. Right. We can beat the IRA by killing them in active engagements. We can beat the IRA by imprisoning them. Mm. We can beat the IRA through uh, ulsterization, as as Roy Mason put it, like, the only son, the REC. 
we, we can win the war mm. was, was the thing. And it, it took a while for them to realize, as so many people realize with insurgency wars, that they're very, very hard to win. Like I think I think I still remember thinking back again to my masters. There's there's a very maybe famous is the wrong word. But there's a very well noted Rand uh, report into how insurgency wars end, hmm. and the vast vast majority of insurgency wars end by negotiation. Right. Um, very very few of them end by the paramilitary force being defeated, hmm. uh, and especially not by police action. Yeah. Um, and it took a long time for the British government. To realize that it probably necessitated a change in government party um, in terms of the change from conservative to labor in the 90s. Yeah. Um, Thatcher and her brand of conservatives were just not in the mental headspace to accept that they had to negotiate with the IRA to the level it needed to be done. Obviously, there was some back channel negotiations during that time. Yeah. But yeah. Th- I'm not a huge Thatcher fan. <laughs> yeah. You can probably tell. Uh, she was definitely whatever the podcast about her. She was probably the wrong person to be prime minister in terms of the troubles at the time. Yeah, yeah. Because she viewed the troubles like she viewed the Falklands, which is a military problem to be solved. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, the IRA were trying to kill her, so I mean, mm. that, that would have that would have influenced Solar her view. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, even even by the end of her tenure, though, she was starting to come around to the idea that mm. they couldn't just keep throwing soldiers in. I mean, the Anglo-Irish agreement wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah, I mean, we, we should get back to the AI in a minute, but from the perspective of the government of the Republic and the military of the Republic, mm. if if the British perspective on a political level was to throw troops into the mix or throw various as you say, securitization um, and, and localization of mm. policing and, and security forces. What, conversely, what was the situation looking at it from the perspective of Dublin, both military, militarily and, 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 and in terms of the political aspects of that? I mean, would, if you were able to sum it up in just like that sort of a thing, as you have with the British. Um, well, I mean, with, with the big glaring exception of 1969, Mm. Don't, there was never any serious or even semi-serious intent to get militarily involved in the north mm. from the Irish, from the respect from from the Republic. I mean, mm. like it was more in terms of like actual practical things that the military was doing. It was just containment in terms of border posts. So and, and state stopping. security, really. Yeah, state security, yeah. finding arms caches, preventing arms importations into the state via the mm. sea. Mm. Uh Co- co- a certain level of cooperation with the with the British military in terms of in terms of that kind of thing as well. Mm. 1969 is the big is the big kind of point there where there's this yeah certain amount of proof. Well, proof is the wrong word. There's a certain sense that the there there are people in the Irish government who are prepared to send Irish soldiers over the border. Um, very very controversial topic. I'm not, I'm not sure I fully believe that those plans were as, as far as advanced as some people think they were. Yeah. Um, Do you think that was like a thought experiment in other words to disprove well, the idea? There was, there was definitely people in Jack Lynch's cabinet who were all for that idea. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't want to say they were detached from reality. Right. Which, um, like it, and it's, it's very easy to look back with hindsight, like I say, but um, like the reports that were drawn up by the, Irish military at that time in terms of like, okay, what would an Irish military incursion into the North look like? It is remarkable because they're all prefaced by, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) Like we are going to outline the best possible way that we could do this, but it's a terrible idea. We absolutely should not do it. 
Yeah. That being said, here's how we would do it. Okay. And like the, the and and it is interesting seeing those plans because it is like okay well that is pretty much probably the best way they could do it like you know it's it's these mobile columns that go to heavily nationalist areas and diversionary attacks in Belfast and then like a big question mark like what happens next? Right. <laughs> yeah, probably the British military destroys us <laughs> uh, <laughs> because like. And it's it's not something I think they, they wanted to acknowledge at the time. The Irish Defence Forces was not very well maintained or financed at that time. Mm. For long periods of its existence, it hasn't been. Mm. Um, and certainly your average Irish soldier was, in the period between 1969 and 1997, your average Irish soldier was in no way equipped to do anything in Northern Ireland um, in terms of any kind of potential military intervention. Right, yeah. That, that so, is what they were trained for, and yeah. no matter what some hardliners believed in Dublin, mm. putting putting your average Irish unit against your average British unit would have had a very predictable result. Right, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, at the best, they might have taken Newry for a couple of days. Yeah, not difficult. even a couple of days. Like, like if we're, if we're getting into well. the full kind of counterfactual, like, mm. generaling, which I love to do sometimes. Yeah. Like... The Irish didn't really have, like, they had an air corps, but mm. it wasn't really much of an air corps, whereas the British have the Royal Air Force, <laughs> and they have Royal Air Force bases all over Northern Ireland. Yeah. So, like, any kind of incursion over the border by the Irish army is being done with basically a complete surrender of the aerial battlefield, mm. which basically means that your soldiers are going to get bombed at will. Right, yeah. And that's pretty much the end of the matter, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Like a like a military, a regular military can't sustain itself in the field without some kind of air cover. Mm. Um, mm. Um, so yeah, and I mean like like the people who drew up those reports, they knew full well that it was a bad yeah. idea. But the yeah. thing is, you you do still hear stories. We were talking about it even on Cedar Lounge that one time from people who swear blind that like my uncle or my my grandfather whatever was in the army and they. Mm. They were this close to going over the border. Like they, mm. they fully expected the order was coming any second, and they were going to be marching uh, towards Derry, towards Newry. I don't know how true that is. Who knows? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Jack Lynch doesn't strike me as the kind of man who would have done that. Um, yeah, it's pretty. Like, close. That that speech he gives, where everyone goes mad over that one line, literally one line in a very very short speech. Yeah, uh, where he calls for like people ignore the rest of that speech where he calls for a UN peacekeeping force to be sent into Northern Ireland mm. but that one line makes people think that suddenly the Republic's going to be like marching on Derry uh, and not going to happen no uh, instead elements of his cabinet did other things yeah <laughs> allegedly yeah. allegedly, allegedly. yeah um, so I suppose the, the effect on people like in Derry uh, of the belief that that might happen is, is probably oh yeah no, that's well, definitely significant. Definitely, it's like oh, like the mm. the Free State soldiers are going to be marching mm. into Derry any day now. They're coming yeah. to rescue us, yeah. which just accurate yeah. and just maybe yeah. kind of reflected uh, a certain distance between the nationalist community, some parts of the nationalist community in Northern Ireland and the Republic. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, the Republic was not the was not good, the cavalry. You know, yeah, yeah. So, so in a sense, like after that. It was a sense, as you, you said it yourself, containment contained yeah. the issue, and and I presume it never really reached a point uh, where the military was all even particularly heavily engaged in it. 
Beyond, Not really, no. Broadly, um, broadly in terms of engaging it. with the troubles, the Garda are mm. heavily engaged because because that's just kind of the way it was. I mean, like I mentioned Jerry McCabe, but mm. uh, there was plenty of other incidents. And in terms of like accusations of state collusion, it's the Garda more than the military in a lot of ways. That's interesting. Especially in those border areas. Um, mm. and, and then there's things like um, manhunts like with Don Tidy, looking yeah. for Don Tidy and so forth, where Irish personnel were killed. Yeah. 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 By the provisionals. Mm. Um, So then the other players in this, obviously, then are the paramilitary groups, Mm. both Republican and loyalist. It's a ways to characterize their, the perspective from them and, 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 you know, how they saw the issue. I mean, we know what it is in Mm. a sense, but purely in military terms, how well yeah were they feasible goals i mean let me put it slightly differently was the state here ever in any danger of being overthrown no would you regard no definitely not right no like and just because i think the the ira had long since moved from the point where the primary enemy was the republic and where the ira in northern ireland were very much set on eventually the british military number one then the organs of the storm and state in the RUC and, and the UDR and things like that, and then also yeah. uh, unionist paramilitaries. Yeah. yeah, there's like the last time you can say that the IRA was genuinely trying to make proactive efforts to overthrow the Irish state. Like you're talking like pre World War II, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, like you're you're almost going back to the Civil War. Like there's there's very little appetite for taking on like the Irish, like the Republic from entities like the provision, not that they, not that they wouldn't in terms of like rating for finances, mm. rating for arms, mm. things like that. But in, in, in terms of, in terms of like trying to see major political change through violence action, then no, not really. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of the unionists, obviously they did carry out bombings in the Republic. Mm. Um, some, spe- some unfortunately spectacular ones on some occasions, but uh, those kind of bombings, they never carried with them any kind of existential intention towards the state. It was more about retaliatory, making statements, uh, things of that nature. Mm. So then in terms of like the perspective of the... Uh, so loyalist paramilitaries, in a sense, um, were attempting to defend the status quo as, as they mm. saw it militarily or to use punitive or demonstrative violence against yeah. uh, much of the time sectarian, basic, basic yeah. sectarian violence. And with Republican paramilitaries, and there's a lot of Republican, well, there's a fair few Republican paramilitaries as history goes on. Name a Republican paramilitary and I'll name you like five splinter groups and yeah, you know, like it's just kind of the, the nature of, of, of that kind of movement. For them, the goal obviously is the um, extirpation of North, of Northern Ireland as a as a whatever sort of political unit we want to yeah. see and, and the unity of the islands and so mm-hmm. forth. As you rightly say, like in a sense, there was no way there was a solution to the conflicts at the heart of this without negotiation and so forth. Mm-hmm. But how would you characterize policies of containment and so forth in terms of containing republicanism and and in, in particular republican power militaries? You've got a situation where you've got Republicans who are attempting to take down the state and again to replace it uh, presumably the united ireland of some form mm. or fashion they want british withdrawal first and foremost yeah. and then uh 
people out of prisons and a process of British political disengagement as well. Um, so was the state itself successful at any point in its containment? I, I mean, you've said in the broader picture it could never be successful. Yeah. But were there times when it was successful and were there times when, Repub- when on the military side, Republicans themselves felt constrained and contained by that? Yeah. Is there in the period that we're discussing, not in the 90s, the 90s are a different ballgame. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious. Um, that- there's, there's definitely periods where where the IRA, like the provisionals, are in more dire straits than they are in other periods. Like there's there's truces in the 70s mm. where which are looked back on very badly by by some members of the provisionals in terms of like, okay, they they were running out of arms and they were running out of funding and, and they they needed some breathing room. And but then that breathing room period was used successfully by the state to put kind of a greater squeeze on the provisionals as well in terms of identifying members and arrests yeah. and things of that nature. Mm. But then like there are other periods, like say that like the, like the very early 70s, like like the earlier 80s, where the provisionals are in a stronger position or, or rather just the IRA in the early 70s, mm. um, just because of the actions of the state are flooding recruitment. Like, right. like when I say the early 80s, I'm, I'm thinking specifically like the hunger strikes. Mm. Mm. Like, you know, like uh, Jerry Adams has talked about events like the hunger strikes and other things about how like it was, it was paraphrasing here, but it was jackpot in terms of like, like instoking nationalist opinion and getting younger people to join yeah. the provisionals and other kind of militant Republican entities. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't like, I, there was, there was never any point I would say where state security forces were very close to defeating the IRA. Hmm any more than the IRA was ever very close to defeating state security forces and getting them to withdraw totally from Northern Ireland. Right. Um, Things, things kind of swung back and forth. Um, The kind of, the tragedy of of the troubles is that there was a lot of killing and and dying and, and, and bloodshed for a political solution that didn't meet the full aims of either side. Right. You know, um, like no one won the troubles. Um, so so yeah like insurgency wars are very hard to win on the behalf of this of like the conventional forces mm. um and they're very hard for the for the insurgents to win in situations like northern ireland where there isn't that kind of clear numerical or clear like support from like a demographic majority mm. and and things of that nature um mm. so like the political solution in the 90s it's 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 easy to look back and say it was inevitable, like with hindsight. Um, but in a situation where like where Republican paramilitaries and the state can't get the political solution they want through violence, in that way it was inevitable. That's interesting. Because you make a very interesting point in one of your t- in one of your posts, um, that uh Sinn Fein's political turn in the very mm. early eighties. Yeah, the armed ballot boxes. Yeah, that it led to people joining Sinn Féin. That's right, yeah. Not necessarily the pro- the provisional IRA, mm. who would not be involved in the provisional IRA yeah. per se, but who came, became involved in political activity and therefore started to build up that section of the yeah. broader Republican movement. And that yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like greater energy and impetus, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, and Sinn Féin scored some very notable um, electoral successes in that period. Then yeah. there's then there's a little bit of a downturn, and then it kind of spikes back up again. Um, but yeah, like like Jerry Adams, I, I'm not sh- who knows when exactly, but he, there was a point when he he realized that there needed to be a greater effort at at finding a political solution. Mm. 
and maybe and like accepting dialogue with the SDL with the STLP and accepting back channel dialogue with with the British um, mm. and maybe putting some of the hardliners within Sinn Féin and the IRA just the side of it. Mm. Uh, one of the things I was reading about recently was um, some of the some of the bombings in the in the 1990s where there's theories that they were permitted to go ahead because they would make the IRA look bad. Right. For the purposes of sidelining the militants. Right. Okay. Uh, and then and then putting the the, polit- the growing political faction, for lack of a better term, uh, in in pole position. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I don't know how true that is, really. But um, but certainly throughout the 80s, there's that growing kind of sense that while the provisions are maintaining their campaign, there's there's over time there's a greater and greater willingness to engage politically. Mm. Um, just, just well, just from the fact from contesting elections, first of all, obviously, which is, mm. which is a very big deal. It causes another split, after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Continuity, and- um, but just and just and just being able to verbally enunciate that, as I said, the armed light and ballot box strategy. Just being able to be in a position to say that publicly and not see the movement come crashing down. Yeah, um, shows that there was this willingness to kind of very. It's very very slow. You know, it's it's achingly slow process, um, but there was that willingness to to seek a political solution. It just took the better part of twenty years to kind of reach the culminating point. You make it, yeah, yeah, because it's interesting you talk about that because you talk about Sunningdale and how mm-hmm. that obviously crashed and burned. Yes, uh, unionism essentially split and split hard mm-hmm. again, uh, Sunningdale. But then you get to a situation with the Anglo-Irish Agreement, where which comes around the same time in a sense as the increased politicization of yeah. Sinn Féin and, that, that, and, and but, there was a, there was one fed into the other there because one of the reasons Gareth Fitzgerald was so hell bent on making that kind of agreement because he wanted to marginalize Sinn Féin yeah, he wanted yeah. to create an agreement that made the STLP the primary political force of nationalism and made sure that Sinn Féin weren't in the position to make any further electoral gains and how well that worked out <laughs> That yeah, didn't work out in so retrospect. Well. In retrospect, yeah. Uh, and like the thing there is as well, like, and this is a point you you argue that in a sense, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, though very, very falling very short of what came with the Good Friday Agreement, mm-hmm. Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and obviously with Sunningdale, but that it actually showed that the British state was willing to in a sense, deprioritize unionism switches Mm. and at least push up some aspects of nationalists' um, uh, wishes or, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's like, no matter how hardliner militant conservative governments got, Mm. there's always that sense of annoyance with unionists in terms of their inability to compromise, their inability to agree to some form of power sharing even of a very nominal uh, mm. nature uh like Roy Mason's kind of initiatives where it was it was power sharing in name only and they couldn't even agree to that yeah yeah so like when when the anglo-irish agreement is made there's this there's this shock in union circles because it's like their legs have been cut out from under them but like mm. in reality you know fig- figures in, in leadership in in britain maybe as far as margaret thatcher were just like well you know, get on with it. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. like, yeah, like, 
like the like there's been so many opportunities for for a government that could potentially like create a political solution that would be favorable to some nationalists at least but they mm. just don't want to know mm. and like that it's uh, like the anglo-irish agreement it, it's a very very important agreement a lot of, a lot of its kind of provisions don't really amount to much in the following few years mm. but it's very very important in terms of why in terms of that it, it doesn't collapse it doesn't yeah. get destroyed by unionists in the aftermath like sunningdale did yeah in the unionists yeah. try yeah. There is there is this strong element in unionism that tries to do the same thing in terms of strikes, in terms of mass protest action, the UWC one, yeah, things. But it backfires really yeah. badly with the English Irish Agreement because there's that famous thing where all of the unionist MPs resign to force by elections and they end up losing one of their seats, yeah, uh, which is yeah. which is a major kind of embarrassment to them. And then things have moved on a bit as well, where just the support in the unionist community. I don't. I don't mean to like. Like one of those things. One of the problems is that too often I think the unionists get like painted as just one homogenous mm. entity. Yeah. But there's a lot of people in the unionist community at that time who aren't gung ho about strikes and aren't mm. gung ho about mass protest action, mm. and are starting to think that well maybe some power sharing wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because it might stop the bombings and the shootings and, and that kind of thing. And mm. maybe nationalists might have a point. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's enough act- and there's enough of that combined with a stronger kind of a security response to those strikes and, and a stronger political response that should yeah. be told, unlike Sunningdale, which crashed and burned yeah. spectacularly. And with the UWC strike, and this again brings in the military side of it, was there ever a sense that the British government, even for a moment, said, right, we'll actually really seriously try to break the UWC strike back in the 70s, in the early 70s? No, no, that's one of the big problems is that the military basically say, no, it's not to do with us. This This is a civil matter. The British military is not going to get involved in this, which is, you know, hilariously ironic when you when you think about everything else they were getting involved in. Yeah, uh, but no, there was there was definitely this, and there was there was a lot of conspiracy theories at the time that the British military were trying to oust the Northern Irish Secretary at the time, who was who was right not looked at very fondly. So it's like, no, we're not going to do anything about these strikes, right? Uh, and that very- situation, like when Roy Mason comes in, that changes mm-hmm. big time because Roy Mason is a whatever about his other faults and there were many mm. uh, he's a bit more forceful in terms of okay no um mm. unionist strike action is not going to be allowed to undermine the political apparatus of the state and state security will be used to enforce that yeah yeah and that kind of relative success kind of feeds into the aftermath of 19 of the anglo-irish agreement and how right. you know um the likes of ian paisley and and Others are not permitted to to destroy that agreement. Um, yeah, and it's it, like like if if for nothing else, that's why the Anglo Agreement is very very important um, because it kind of showed that that like Dublin and London could come to that kind of uh, con- concord, and it wouldn't get torn up straight away because because the the unionists said they didn't like it. The other angle on this, of course, is that the provisional area is getting arms in from abroad. Mm. In significant quantities, at least. Yeah, very interesting topic. Yeah, yeah, intermittently, like it's not working all the time, as 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 yeah. we know. Uh, I mean, I think the last time I was here, we we talked about like that that kind of constant thing in Irish history of looking to abroad right. for the savior. How sometimes it's France, sometimes it's Spain, sometimes it was Germany, and then yeah. suddenly in the nineteen eighties it was Libya. Yeah, <laughs> um, like just in in terms of a very large amount of of material. In terms of guns, but especially in terms of explosives, 
like I like when I was reading through and writing up stuff for the eighties, a lot of the times it's like this bomb was made of Semtex that was probably imported Bolivia, mm. and there's and there's other avenues as well. Like there's the United States, although that gets shut down as an avenue for arms in in the eighties, and but there's a few others here and there. And of course, the unionists are doing as well. The unionists are importing arms from South Africa and other places. Yeah, and um, the INLA was kind of that's right, Jim, backing on, and but it seems to have much smaller mm-hmm. capacity to. Yeah, and of, and of course, there's a there's a very famous incident where the Irish state is potentially involved in importing arms. Yes, for the IRA. Uh, right. Um I said I remember when I wrote up my entry on the arms the arms trial. I actually had to put a note saying I have to apologize in advance for using the word allegedly over and over again. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just because I kind of have to. I'll be safer that way. I'd yeah. say. Yeah. Has to be said. And there was a body of thought like that inside the Republican movement that with these newfound arms there was uh in the mid 80s there was a potential for a, a you know i mean i've heard it describes the tet offensive and so on and so forth. yeah i mean uh, it is it's a period where for the first time in a very long time the ira has too many guns mm. it is more guns than it has people to to hold them and shoot them mm. um, so in that sense that that kind of feeling where okay yeah there, there could be something like a, a tet offensive could be launched uh it seems improbable or implausible no. yeah because it's not it's not really the same situation mm. as, as as vietnam um like the ira doesn't have a very sympathetic state to operate out of i mean obviously yeah. like the ira were did maintain so a presence in the republic and they had arms cash and that they like mm. but, but dublin wasn't friendly to the ira mm. <laughs> it wasn't it's not really yeah. the same thing and yeah. I just I would deem the idea of the kind of mass attack that the Tet Offensive was occurring in Northern Ireland at the hands of entities like the Provisionals. Yeah, even if they tried, it wouldn't have worked out like they would have wanted to, because the pu- the public support for such a thing probably wasn't there. Yeah. They would have faced a more varied opposition than than the NVA did, because you're facing state security forces, you're stating opposing paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and also, like, I mean, there's also like the idea of flying columns mixed in as well. It always strikes me as in the in the late twentieth century that would have yeah. been far too open to aerial. Yeah, there's there's a kind of a romantic attachment to the idea of the flying column, just yeah. because it worked so successfully in part. Yeah, during the Irish War of Independence, it wasn't all that in the Irish War of Independence. Really, there's there was a lot of kind of flying columns that achieved nothing. Mm. But there's a few flying columns that achieved some spectacular successes. So it became this thing for like all throughout the 20th century, like Tom Barry is still trying to organize flying columns in the 40s. Yeah. You know, um, or the late 30s rather. Uh, so yeah, but I mean like in 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 the late 20th century, the idea of the flying column doesn't have as much to go for it because of the advances very much so in aerial reconnaissance and and offensive capability Mm. um which wasn't there in the 1920s and and in terms as well of the uh like british familiarity with terrain and 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 things of that nature so yeah i mean like there's a reason that the the provisionals moved to what we call the long war strategy um in the 80s it was a consequence of kind of them evaluating what they had to hand and a consequence of them realizing in terms of us achieving political results with our military action, we're better off with this war of attrition strategy, which doesn't call for a gigantic, spectacular, Tet offensive style thing. Yeah. It calls for a constant, never-ending level of bombings, assassinations, mm. 
that that we can give the perception that we'll never stop until mm. something is done. And, and yes. while they didn't achieve all their goals, that was probably more successful for them than, than anything else. So in a sense, and this brings in like the bombing campaigns and of course attacks, not just in Britain, but obviously on, on the European continent as well. I mean, there was efforts, you know, there were attacks, um, oh, I think in Germany and in mm. uh, yeah, yeah, there's incidents there, and obviously there's there's in, from the other side there's Gibraltar. Yeah, yeah, um, Demetrius. Um, it's not a war like calling it a world war would be an exaggeration, but like yeah. it's definitely not the the only kind of arena of conflict there. Yeah, it's spilled out of Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. but in that sense, like um, clearly, in that respect, armed struggle could only ever be a tool in a sense or mm-hmm. methodology amongst many with the end point being a political yeah. club and and so forth um and to what extent do you think given the relative size of um the paramilitaries and i guess this is a slightly different que- question but it does i think address it in terms of they given their small size how capable were they of pushing sufficiently that that actually had an effect and a political effect i mean how how much of that fed in without giving the game away because we're going to be obviously talking at some point in the future with you about like the the 90s and yeah 2000s um like i mean like a single person who's able to build and plant a bomb Mm. can cause an enormous political effect um like we talk like the uh, the thing that obviously brings to mind is is the brighton hotel bombing Mm where uh, an IRA unit just figures out there's going to be a conservative conference here. Margaret Thatcher's probably going to be staying in this suite. So what we'll do is we'll go there a few weeks early, plant a bomb a few floors up. Mm. And it's not a very complicated bomb. It's not hidden in any kind of especially audacious way. Mm. Um, But it comes very close to assassinating the head of the British government. Um, And it certainly has an enormous impact on her thinking Margaret Thatcher's thinking that is, and and in the way that she led the Conservative Party, mm. um, maybe not entirely in the way that the Provisionals expected, but but like yeah. there's definitely an enormous impact there. Yeah, and that was a lesson that the IRA, the Provisionals, any other form of the IRA had known for a long time. Mm. You know, like well, like we we look all the way back, we 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 date the War of Independence to members of the IRA shooting two police to steal some explosives um, in, in a field in Tipperary. Mm. And that was a very minor event in and of itself, but it had enormous political significance. Mm. And, you know, 60, 70, 80 years later, like the, like members of the IRA knew it, it doesn't take that much to get a lot of publicity, especially with the advent of like mass media. Um, and it doesn't take that much to, to do something that will be talked about in the halls of power and will influence people in the halls of power. And there's plenty of occasions where the provisionals uh, botch those kind of things, where they go too far. Mm. Their targets are of a nature that only creates problems for them in terms of like international condemnation and yeah. and uh, losing pop- losing support inside their own community. Right. There's loads of there's loads of incidents like that, and you could say the same for unionist paramilitaries. And um, was that like with that constraint, those limitations, how consciously did they attempt to avoid them, or did they just sometimes not care? Or... It's, it's, uh, there's definitely occasions where they don't care, or they maybe they, they don't realize how bad the condemnation will be. Mm. Um, like the remote bombing is one, yeah, definitely kind of comes to mind where 
there probably isn't enough care taken in terms of who like they were they were trying to target like a military unit or I think it was the UDR maybe. Um whatever happens, they they don't hit that unit and they end up killing a lot of civilians, many of whom are quite elderly, who were there yeah. to take part in memorial service. Yeah. It's impossible to look at that and say, well, the IRA gained a lot out of that. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, they like they get condemnation, they get uh, like losing popular support from their own community is the really big thing, really. Mm. Um, you could you, the argument could be made that like well they're trying to court outrage they're trying to they're trying to get the British to send more soldiers in because that'll make the British look bad in the long term and there's, there's there may be some merit to that argument mm. um, but there's absolutely there's definitely occasions where there's a lack of care because it's just they're just looking for a target to kill yeah yeah um, you could say that for the IRA you could say that for the UDF for the UDA for the UDA whoever um, mm. There's a lot of interesting points made that in some ways the the unionist paramilitaries are a bit more openly sectarian than the IRA. The IRA often frame their attacks as as being non-sectarian in nature, like whereas the UDA and UVF are a bit more open in that they're actively targeting Catholics. But in practice, it's 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 fairly sectarian either way. There's there's definitely incidents where the IRA shoot themselves in the foot, metaphorically mm. speaking. Mm. Um, but it's it's a mix of either didn't care or didn't take enough care, or or maybe maybe they 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 intended and just didn't realize what the what the backlash would be. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, you'd think, say, the attempted assassination of Thatcher, you'd think they would have been trying that a lot of the time. Yeah. I wonder if they were or they were. Yeah. There's there's that that very famous. A statement after that, which is you know, you got lucky this time. We only need to yeah. be once, which is a fairly chilling thing to be saying. Yeah, and there's plenty of incidents where major political figures get assassinated during during the mm. troubles, like various MPs, various mm. um, civil servants. Um, that kind of targeted assassination again, it's a lesson learned from the War of Independence, the whole Irish Revolutionary Period. You know, where mm. you, you can you can make a you can make a big impact with one bullet. Mm. Um, in terms of scaring other people, in terms of promoting people to political positions who maybe aren't as capable as people who were there before, yeah. um, in terms of engendering the kind of harsh responses that you're trying to engender because then it will stoke outrage in your own community and you'll yeah. get support and, and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and like especially in the 80s when, when you get to that kind of long war kind of period, there is there is a deeper understanding. Like well, the hunger strikes is a big is a big deal of that. Where there is bombing, there isn't any bullets, but there's an enormous uh, positive benefit for militant republicanism out of the hunger strikes. Right. And there's definitely like a big realization there that like there's a lot of weapons that can be used yeah. um, to to influence political opinion. Another area that's of interest as well is. The amount of energy expended by the paramilitaries, and this this actually encompasses the loyalist ones as well, um, on attacking one another. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and how like how would you characterize that in terms of, or is there any way to characterize that as as a? Well, it's difficult. It's difficult to characterize in a general sense because there's a lot of reasons why that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there's very clear political divides between like mm-hmm. the officials and the provisionals, and later between like provisionals of continuity and continuity. Mm-hmm. And blah, 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 blah. And then sometimes it's it's that kind of turf thing where it isn't so much a political thing. It's just that this is our area and you're not allowed to operate in it. And if you try, we're going to yeah. shoot you. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes it there's like, and maybe more so as the conflict goes on, there's this very outward criminality element to it where like 
certain paramilitary groups are no longer really act, acting with political goals. Mm. They're acting for their own enrichment and, mm. and things of that nature and stuff like that naturally engenders kind of violence within the unit and and, yeah. and stuff like that. Hard to, you know, like there's 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 a lot going on with that kind of topic that is hard to kind of summarize. But what I will say is that it's rare. Like, the history of Irish nationalism, be it political or militant, is full of splits and yeah. divides, and yeah. and the unionists to a certain extent as well. Not not maybe not quite as pronounced, mm. but the his, the whole history of that is full of of just like people falling out and finding out that they they feel better off shooting each other rather than shooting the the exterior enemy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's still going on today to a certain extent, you know, with, with whatever whatever entities are left that claim the title of IRA. Where are you going to bring this next? So uh, I I have written posts up to 1990. Wow. And I have okay. planned posts up to 1998. I have, I have right. a plan of action up to the OMA bombing, and which right. which will will, ba- will basically mark the the end of the troubles. Which again, I say in quote marks because. Mm. There's an argument to me that the troubles is only end there, but mm. I, I need to find some kind of end point. Mm. Uh, after that, there are a few things here and there to talk about. Um, the UN missions, obviously. Uh, mm. I was thinking maybe there might be some form of post on Irish involvement in things like U4, yeah. like that. Um, decommissioning? Decommissioning, yes. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Like I'll, I'll still... I'll still cover events in Northern Ireland mm. as they relate to stuff like decommissioning and mm. the continuing kind of outline of the peace process and, and a few other small, small scale violent incidents that have occurred, thankfully mm. small scale. Then the plan is to, I've, I've I had it in mind for a long time. When I started this where the last post chronologically would just be a summation of Ireland's military position today. Right. In terms of, threats external and internal and, and mm. else and then maybe a post kind of trying to analyze how that might change in the future yeah in terms of like threats external internal that might crop up or other things that might have a, an impact on ireland militarily whether it's cyber warfare whether it's diplomatic things related to stuff like the war in ukraine whether it's climate change mm. And then after that, I'll be the plan is to start filling in some gaps because I've been doing this for over 10 years and my style of writing has changed for the better, I hope. Uh, there's definitely periods of Irish history going far back where I didn't write a lot of entries for them at the time, where now I think I could write more. Hmm. The example we talked about is I wrote two entries about the Viking uh, impact on Ireland, and I think I could write a few more on that. Um, right looking back and a few other things like stuff that i missed or or just that i maybe i learned more about after the facts and i couldn't really yeah. go back. i've already done that before like like i there was there's been times when i've i fleshed out a few things here and there like uh, the early anglo-norman invasion of ireland I, I used to have just a couple of entries then i went back and i, I wrote like five or six more just to kind of fill it out because right. it's a very important topic and it deserved a bit more like i, I was yeah. 11 69 straight to like straight to like the 1500s which wasn't really good enough um so i'll see how many gaps i can fill in there and maybe expand about a few other things that i that i i want to and then after that i'm not sure <laughs> i'll have to find something else to do oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <Starting a conflict. laughs> uh, 
maybe I'll write about football more. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's amazing because it's uh, it's very comprehensive so far. So it's, mm. it's... I'll, 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 so one thing I probably will do is I'll probably do a general uh, reread and and uh, fixing of spelling and punctuation and yeah. And maybe changing some words around so they sound a bit better. Because uh, again, again, like uh, it's over ten years ago now. I started this, and mm. over that time, I, I, I def like if you, I'd, I'd say if you put the, one of my more recent posts against one of the earlier ones, it would look very different. That's um, interesting. I have to look just, that I'd love now. To go back and just maybe start fixing things up a little bit. Yeah. So well, since I read some of the earlier ones, so I have to yeah. go back and do that. Like, yeah, like my problem, like a lot of people is is. <laughs> I look back at something I read 10 years ago and I'm just, that's crap. Why, that was rubbish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't. It's grand. That's yeah. too critical. But that's just my own perception. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I look back and I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, <laughs> well, so I have to say, like, firstly, thanks a million for coming in and talking again about Personally this. Time. Um, certainly, once you've got into the 90s and into the early 2000s, I mean, those are whatever else, like it's target rich environments out there. There's so yeah. much that happens across those, you know, across 10 years even. And, and even, you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about this, e- this evening, it just compresses more and more into like that decade and yeah. so forth. So I think there's plenty of. Mm, plenty yeah, of- no, there's a lot to talk about yeah. in the 90s for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks a million for your time, Dave. Yeah, so listen. Anytime, I'm always I'm always delighted to be asked. And, and we really look forward to having you back. And yeah, uh, thanks go ahead and write the sequel for us and uh, let us know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, get, like, I'll get on that. The sooner the better. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. No, I mean it's 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 a great project. It's one that uh, mm-hmm. is fascinating, and uh, really look forward to seeing how you tackle with the nineties and uh, mm-hmm. take it from there. And Thank you, Temporary, Yeah. Thanks a million. Thanks, thanks, thanks a million to you. Thanks. Thanks.